It's Zach Plopper, Conservation Director at Wild Coast. I am calling you from Chamela Bay, about three hours south of Puerto Vallarta on the Mexican Pacific coastline. Incredible dry tropical forests near pristine beaches, a couple waves along the way. And we're here, Wild Coast is here exploring some new opportunities in marine conservation. I also wanted to let you and listeners know that on June 23rd at the Coronado Caves Yacht Club in San Diego, Wild Coast is having its fifth annual Baja Bash fundraiser, bringing the best of Baja music, food with a strong conservation message to San Diego County. You can learn more at wildcoast.org. Love the show, man. I really dug the Damo Hobgood episode. What a legend he is. What a legend you are. Keep up the great work. That was a message from one of our listeners. I am a big fan of the work that Wild Coast does, and I will link to their website underneath Abby's bio. You heard him. June 23rd. If you're in the area, mark it in your calendar. I'm coming to you from Santa Cruz, California, with an ice-cold beer in my hand. While watching the sunset, I have a thick book in front of me, and I am going to read you a short excerpt from it. Intellectuals are in a position to expose the lies of governments, to analyze actions according to their causes and motives and often hidden intentions. In the Western world, at least, they have the power that comes from political liberty, from access to information and freedom of expression. For a privileged minority... Western democracy provides the leisure, the facilities, and the training to seek the truth, lying hidden behind the veil of distortion and misrepresentation, ideology and class interest, through which the events of current history are presented to us. That was an excerpt out of The Chomsky Reader, which is the latest book on my book club, Head over to kyle.surf slash book club to check out all of my favorite reads. Thank you so much to Amy T for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. High five, Amy. I really appreciate it. This is an ad-free podcast, and I rely on listeners like you to donate. So you can click the link below the bio of this episode to donate on Patreon, or you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to donate. And if you can't donate, don't even worry about it. Give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Keep enjoying the show. I was able to cajole Miss Abby Martin into this podcast by giving her a surf lesson down in Santa Monica. And you know what? She's pretty good. She's pretty good. And then we went down the street and we recorded this conversation at my buddy Shane's art studio. You can check him out at so many possibilities on Instagram. This is a great episode, you guys. For those of you who don't know, Abby Martin is an American journalist and presenter of The Empire Files, an investigative news program on the satellite network Telesur and YouTube. She was formerly the host of Breaking the Set on the Russian network RT America, working from the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Before hosting her own show, she had worked for two years as a correspondent for RT America. Martin is also an artist and activist and helped found the citizen journalism website Media Roots. She serves on the board of directors for the Media Freedom Foundation, which manages Project Censored. Martin appeared in the documentary film Project Censored the Movie 
ending the reign of junk food news, and co-directed 99% the Occupy Wall Street collaborative film. Most importantly, she stood up on more than five waves on her first day surfing. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and foes, without further preamble, please welcome to the show, Miss Abby Martin. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Here we go, straight in from the surf session. Nice. You did great. Did all right, man. That was that was fun as hell, though. Yeah. What did yeah. you like about it? The freedom. Um, I was really scared about the water being too freezing because I'm a baby, and the water was awesome. The wetsuit was incredible, and just floating out there, man, just floating on the Cadillac. Yeah. It was so cool. I feel like it would be scarier if I didn't have you there. It, it felt really comfortable having you like tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a kind of situational awareness that's learned after a few times out in the water, but you're a swimmer, so you, yeah. you could uh, get in. You did great. You and Mike both got like six or seven waves. It helps to, to coming from a skateboarding background and snowboarding, I think, to know how to balance. But did you yeah. grow up skating and snowboarding? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I haven't for so long, though, because it's just tough once you move away from having an access to mountains your world just completely changes. You yeah. Know? Yeah. A lot of that stuff that we fall in love with as, as kids sort of recedes away from us as we grow up and totally. it's tragic to see. And then people wake up one day and their life is cluttered with stuff and kids and a job that they don't value. And they realize they haven't been to the beach in six months. Traffic, fluorescent lighting, um, getting more away from nature. It's a tragedy. And also just the, devaluation of art and music in our lives like how, why is that the first thing removed when you know what i mean when education yeah, when is, a school needs to cut <laughs> yeah, it's like well let's just cut art yeah. it's like well what do you mean like art and pe <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> people don't need that shit let's turn them into computers <laughs> it's horrible because yeah. to me those are the things that generate therapy i mean that that really help you escape the just the um daily you know weight yeah. Of everything else. It just, it's, it's something so crucial for everyone's life. And I think that art is so accessible to everyone. And that's why it's so sad, like doing art, growing up doing art. And, you know, my grandparents had a ceramic studio and people feel like it's this unattainable thing where they're like, oh, like, I wish that I could do that. I'm like, have you ever tried? Yeah, I'm bad at art. <laughs> Literally just try, yeah. try to do watercolor, clay, like every medium until you kind of just find whatever makes you happy and you don't have to be good. And it takes a long time, but it's just such a beautiful thing. And it's just so sad that people just just feel like it's this kind of like elite. Yeah, well, it's this com- it's it's a comfort. You need to be comfortable fumbling through things right. for a little while, and most people don't get the lesson early on that when you start something new, you're just gonna suck at it for right. a while. So learn how to be comfortable sucking. And then you'll get good at it really quickly. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you are in a situation that you're in and people are like, how did you get there? And copy other people. You know what I mean? You don't need to go in there being like, I don't have my own unique thing. That comes. It, it helps to just like 
borrow from stylistically, you know, and just keep, like you said, fumbling through it until you can kind of generate your own voice. But yeah, it's, it is a really big shame. And I just try to encourage everyone who I talk to about art to just try it yourself yeah, and do it yourself. Um, it's just the most amazing thing. And I'm speaking actually as a hypocrite because I have not done art for about a year. I, in New York, I didn't have space. And so in LA, um, it's just the thing where you just put politics ahead of everything else. And it's just, I was just telling you today before we started this, that being out in the water and just hanging out with you has just given me kind of like a new kick, a new inspiring kick where like, I don't need to just be draining in, you know, the swamp per se of just like all the horrible shit that's going on on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And you can get out of that and see that that there's a whole other world out there. You know what I mean? Fuck yeah. I I really appreciate (laughs) that. It's tough. Um, well, along the lines of sucking at things, I have a challenge to you because yeah. I have um, been doing a lot of reading up on you. Uh, oh, no. I think that you should give yourself permission to do stand-up comedy. <laughs> I think that you have a secret desire to do stand-up comedy because you're funny and you hang out with comics all the time. And I think that the the you have a lot in common with them. Like you like it real and raw and you say it how it is. And I think that the closest industry to that is comedy. You know, I wanted to be a comedian when I was young, but I think that (laughs) it's funny. There's a certain trait for comedians. It's like Lee, you know, my good friend Lee camp is like this brooding (laughs) kind of dark comedian. Um, But I think that you, and, and he just kind of generates his, craft through you know channeling like all the all the nightmare that we're living in but I think that to be a successful comedian it takes a lot it's fucking crazy to me that these people get out there and you're like if you don't just keep people laughing 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 the second a joke falls flat you're like fuck I failed (laughs) I'm out of here like that really takes something that I feel like I it would it would really be tough to work through that crowd but I just actually opened for Lee and Jimmy Dore um, last weekend or the weekend before, and it was a riot, man. It was fun as fuck, and I, I told a couple jokes and got some laughs. But it was it was fun. It was like, how am I supposed to you know, do were you this? All, you, so you were on stage? And I went on stage and introduced them as, as, as a comic. But it was um, you know half political, half, half trying to be funny. But no, it was, it was amazing. I, w- I feel like it would be so difficult to get up there in front of a house of strangers who you don't know what, you know, and that's why a lot of comics just fall with the dick jokes and what's easy. Yeah. You know, I feel like the, the comedians that I've seen in the Trump era, you, I'm expecting a lot more because I feel like the time that we're living in is so easy to satirize, but at the same time, it might, that might be actually the downfall where it's like, how do you even make a joke out of someone who every day is saying something so outrageous, you know, grab him by the pussy one day, what is he going to say tomorrow? So it's tough to keep up, but it's been a little bit disappointing at the lack of kind of hard hitting comedians out there. I mean, Joe actually had, Joe Rogan had, I think one of the best sets that I've seen, but he's just such a professional. I think that you have to be in the game for so long to, to really be at that level but no it's it's weird what do you think about just the comedians in the trump era i think that there's a real power in right now more than ever paying attention to the way that language shapes empathy mm-hmm. i think that we're seeing this more than more and more than ever um with abrasive language with like the power in 
comedy is to build up this premise and sort of rip it down. So like, you know, rather than uh, calling it murder, we call it surgical strikes rather than um, saying that we fucked up, that we say mistakes were made. And I think that comedy is a really beautiful way, especially now to rip down that premise because I'm a big believer that what we need more than ever right now is to build empathy. And we do that through language. That's really, really good, good point there, Kyle, because as we know, the empire does use language to condition the masses. And just like what you were saying, the collateral damage mowing the lawn, this is what generals and military officials say when, when simply civilians are carpet bombed in a neighborhood, they mowed the lawn. I mean, that's how sick we talk about human beings. It's sick. Yeah. And even just the word collateral damage. People fucking died. These yeah. are human yeah. beings. Yeah. You know what I mean? This isn't like ants. I mean, it's just, it's sick. Right. So I think that to um, sharpen the point of the role in comedy right mm. now, people talk about comic relief. And when we, it's, that's true. It really does provide relief when looking at our situation right now, honestly. And I think that we need that more than ever now to pay attention and laugh because these are the end of, it's the end of an era, that's for sure. And all you can really do, you know, behind the rage is laugh. Which is why people go to John Oliver, you know, Stephen Colbert and stuff. And that's why they were so wildly popular during, let's say, the Bush administration. And that's why it was so disappointing to see that rally for sanity. Do you remember that? When they had this big rally. And then the yep. rally was essentially them saying, Medea Benjamin is fucking nuts, the woman who runs Code Pink. This was John Stewart. John Stewart, right. yep. Stephen Colbert. They had this big rally. And, and basically it was a rally saying, let's restore centrism. Let's have millions of people standing around saying, we don't want anything better. We're fine the way we are. Uh, you know, conflating basically anti-war activists to like neo-Nazis. I mean, it was that kind of thing where you're like, these people are extremists and we're just normal and we want, we want to restore decency. And that to me is just really problematic, especially when you have John Oliver who paints himself as this progressive and like you said the comic relief is super important when things are so dark seemingly but then he guides people over to kind of that neoliberal mindset where he's talking about Venezuela and kind of repeating the tropes that you hear that are just so easily debunkable um, and so it's it's shifts people into I think a, a not a very good place to build these discussions and, and break out of that mindset. So the comedians today serve as actually an arm, an extension of the state in a way where they pretend like they're countering it, but really at the end of the day, they're not. I heard you make an interesting point um, the other day on, on one media outlet or another um, about how the um, left uses identity politics to enhance corporate power. Um, so like an example of this would be the Pepsi ad that used Martin Luther King and, you know, and, uh, Martin Luther King's daughter tweeted, if only my daddy knew the power of Pepsi. Um, and I, I think that you have an interesting perspective on how, on the fact that people do care about these issues right now, but it seems like every movement is being sold back to us at an ever, uh, accelerating rate. That is such a genius way to put it. It's so true, Kyle. And this is the problem with the Democratic Party in the most egregious way. For example, the Republicans on one hand are unabashed in their bigotry. They're, I think you were, someone was making this point the other day that like we know what they stand for. 
like legitimately we know exactly who they are and what they stand for and that makes me actually respect them more in a way than I do the Democrats because the Democrats couch themselves in identity politics to make themselves seem like they're on our side, like they're siding with the working class. But we know that they don't. So really what it comes down to is that mass movements drive you know, policies, obviously. It's not just the politicians that come in and just have like altruistic gains. These people are rarely get into politics for the right reasons. And if they do, they immediately get sold out. I mean, even Josh Fox, when we saw him, he said, you know, he he felt like he had to give up that state, the, the countrywide fracking ban because that's how the sausage is made, quote unquote. And when you get involved in politics at that level, sometimes you need to make compromises, right? So that's that's the problem. But movements, let's say movements like the immigrant rights movement, which was other than the anti-war movement in 2003, the immigrants' right movement under the Bush administration was the largest masses of people in the streets other than the anti-war movement and the Vietnam War movement. Millions of people. It was the sleeping giant, they called it. So what did Obama do? He passed DACA with an executive order that, that basically wanted people to say, like, look, um, and this was the DREAM Act, this was giving people the right who were born here, you know, a path to citizenship. So he used that movement, he used the energy from that movement to say, I'm going to give you a concession, right? Getting away from your point, though, back to your point, is that they use movements to make concessions too. So they'll steal the most revolutionary ideas and language, repackage it, and then sell it back to us to say, you know, like the $15 an hour minimum wage, Hillary Clinton can go out there and just say, I, I were for affordable health care. But then when it gets down to the nitty gritty, she will not actually back. Devils <laughs> single, in the details. Yeah, right. The single payer. Or Dianne Feinstein in California, which I have no idea how this clown is still serving. I really think it's name recognition at this point. But, you know, she says the same thing. She's like, I'm for living wage and also... Um, healthcare for all. And it's like, but you actually don't back the policies when it comes down to it. So that it's easy for them to say these kind of meaningless things. You know, I, I'm for a living wage. I'm for this. I'm, I'm for that. But then when it comes down to it, they aren't. And so they use things like, they basically use all they have, which is we're running a woman. You know, we're running basically minority candidates to sell, to make people think that, that, you know, we're going to be feminist. And, and if anyone knows anything about Hillary, um, or Barack Obama. I mean, they, they pretty much did nothing for women or the African-American community. I mean, Obama was called the deporter-in-chief because he deported actually more people during his administration than all of the presidencies before him. He's actually deported more people at a rate higher than Trump, which is very interesting at this time in his presidency. So I just, you know, the Democrats have basically perfected that notion of, of taking identity politics, which is supposed to be this radical revolutionary thing where we're supposed to advance gains for women, African-Americans, minorities, and they've packaged it. I mean, this is capitalism. This is, this is a consumer-driven society, and you're not, you know, you, you can't not think that these multimillionaires at the top don't have PR agencies, you know? It's just the same as corporations. They, like you said, Pepsi's selling us Black Lives Matter. Right. I mean, like, yeah. literally using Kendall Jenner. Um, out of Black Lives Matter protests to sell us products. I mean, that is surreal. I was but having that's a, the time that we live in. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and we were trying to uh, describe what a hipster is. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are the qualifiers <laughs> of a hipster? And he said something really brilliant. He said, a hipster is the result of a generation that's had every movement sold back to them. Wow. Which creates this apathy. And it makes people realize that you know, every political cycle, you're just going to 
it's the I mean, it's the disenfranchisement and it's people being completely disillusioned with the system. And that's why you just see people just completely tuned out because how many times can you go through these iterations where you get jazzed up and then you're like, this is going nowhere. Um, how many times can we really fall prey to that trick? You know, it's a shame. It's a really big shame. I listened to um, the interview that you did with Noam Chomsky and you asked him uh, a question around how, um, you say, I think you said something along the lines of, how does a person without background, without framework, and without understanding um, understand the world today? Like, what, what lens do you look at the world through to come to your conclusions? I look at the world through... Um, I, just buy, I just buy Pepsi. I, I, just, I just look at what corporations are telling me is cool, and I just go out I and buy those Pepsi products. And it, sh- it shows me I love, I love black people, bro. Check out this Pepsi. I love women, so that, you know, yeah. I, I just vote down the line and buy the products that they tell me. Um, I look at the world. So I'm, I'm going back to your thing about empathy, Kyle, and this is, this is I couldn't agree more. That's what I generate my entire worldview through. I think of someone in Yemen who's suffering of starvation, the same as I do my neighbor who's homeless, like all of these things, we need to look at them as a, obviously we're an international family of human beings. And I think nationalism and jingoism breeds this this bigotry, this sickness, especially in America, when we have this bizarre sickness where we actually think that we're better than everyone else. It's, it's beyond just nationalism. You think that you are fucking superior to other human beings. And then that can breed a whole host of atrocities where you just justify anything um, but but in terms of the world so so number one I'm an internationalist where I see myself as a member of the global citizenry number two um, when you're looking at the world in an international lens you have to look at the way things are the way they are and this is my biggest disagreement with people like Sam Harris who looks at things very statistically and mathematically who looks at you know data and, and the problem that I have with that is you have to look at the context and the historical narratives that have bred our reality today. So if you look at the rest of the world, the colonized and the colonizers who have shaped our world today. You can't look at Haiti, you can't look at Venezuela, you can't look at Syria, Iraq, any of these countries in a vacuum. You can't look at Gaza in a vacuum and just say this many people there believe this. I mean, how did Gaza come to be? How were these, these you know, the Sykes-Pico line that was just arbitrarily drawn by colonized entities 100 years ago that just drew a line right, right straight through the Middle East and formed all these fake barriers. Um, in Iraq, a line was drawn, um, you know, and basically sectarianism arose out of colonizers drawing up the country because they wanted to basically, I mean, that, that was why Saddam had, um, was able to sustain that society in a, authoritarian way in in one aspect, but on the other hand, he was able to keep all these sectarian lines um, more cooperatively contained. And then when the U.S. comes in, then we just fuck everything up. It's, It's a tragedy that people can look at the world today and not understand that or not want to be curious about how things came to be. And that I find going back to the American exceptionalism and the idea that we are always moral and superior and all of our intentions are good and I just find that completely debunked because I if you're going with every human being has good intentions for the most part ISIS thinks they're doing the right thing Al-Qaeda thinks they're doing the right thing 
So don't fucking tell me that Bush and Cheney and Trump have good intentions, therefore our actions are morally justified. Yeah, no one thinks they're, all, they're the bad guys exactly. during war. Exactly. No, we're the bad guys. We're they're all the, the good baddies. guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're everyone, you know what I mean? So that so you have to kind of shift your, your line of thinking. It's not easy, because then all of a sudden the world is on your shoulders. But, um, but I think it's crucial to be a human being and to understand the suffering and the toils especially that have been caused if you're an american man our fucking country has really subjugated the masses for the last 100 years and it's it's your duty as an american citizen to actually know where our tax dollars are going and what we're doing to the rest of the world i had to write down something that you said recently cuz i thought that it was Awesome. Nice. And then I want to hear it. I want to hear probably stole it from someone else. Just joking. You said you don't do this work for the recognition. You don't do it to be on the magazine covers because you're never going to be rewarded in the current system that we live in. We're always going to live on the margins and fight on the margins. I want to instruct people on how history has shaped our reality today and how we can use it to learn and prevent similar atrocities from continuing. I just hope that we can evolve to a point where we can do that. Yeah, and that I actually did get influenced by a woman um, named Rosa Clemente who was, uh, she ran with the Green Party ticket with Cynthia McKinney, and she's an incredible woman, Puerto Rican uh, black activist who sat down with me and gave me the most lucid analysis of political activity, grassroots mobilizations in the era of Trump, and it was just the most memorable interview for me because she told me that basically the father of African-American history was so marginalized. He was never rewarded. He was never put on the front page of a magazine. You know, he never was lauded for his incredible work that history obviously has rewarded him. He's shaped a whole generation and, and line of thinking. And you look at someone like Martin Luther King, he was actually the most vilified man in the country. He was the most hated black man. And now we have, you know, we've whitewashed his entire legacy. Look at Frida Kahlo. I mean, this was a hardcore communist who had an affair with Trotsky, and now Mattel wants to make a Barbie doll out of her. So the whitewashing of these radical revolutionary figures who were actually detested um, at the time, and, and Frida obviously was an exception. She was a famous artist. But I'm just saying the whitewashing of these figures, but also in the MLK's sense, the complete demonization, where FBI was sending him a letter saying, commit suicide, kill yourself. They were trying to actually get him to, to kill himself. I mean, they hated him so much. He was such a threat when he started talking about how Vietnam was tied to poverty and how you know our, our government is actually the greatest source of terrorism in the world today. If only he would have known he would be on the cover of Pepsi ads now. <laughs> no, if only he wouldn't know how I'm far doing it all go. for the Pepsi ad. <laughs> And so when Rosa told me that, um, it made me just realize that, you know, a lot of people that I know, it's really tough to work your whole life and in, in this world, Kyle, and never get rewarded and never, you know, because, but, but, but think about it. I mean, why would you be, if, if they reward voices like mine, um, I'm basically talking about abolishing the system that we have today. So obviously the system's not going to reward the radical voices that impede its standing or would somehow undermine it, you know, undermine its legitimacy. So, so I, instead of being rewarded, I am demonized, vilified. You will not find an article about me without going through all of my faults and all of the things that I've ever said in my life that, you know, discredit me, um, which is a shame, but at the same time, it's a compliment. 
because obviously, you know, people who are working for corporate media are not going to want something, you know, I mean, it just, it's so obvious. It's like the system does not reward the radical thinkers. They don't reward the revolutionary thinkers. And, um, and it's very obvious why Kyle. Well, you heard it here. Abby Martin stood up on a wave today and that's not getting debunked. (laughs) Oh man. We're going to show a photo of you standing up on a wave and we'll be like, that was superimposed. <laughs> Bullshit. She never did it. It was a hologram. Abby Martin stands up debunked. <laughs> but you can't do this. You can't do this work to get rewarded. You can't. And, and that's, and it's a, what I find really fascinating is you run the opposite direction of what society tells you to do because in the society that we live in, you have to, it's all about you, right? Like you gotta, you gotta be famous kid. Not only do you have to be rich and make it on your own, but you have to be fucking famous. You have to be popular. You have to have the Facebook friends. And if you don't have the follows and if you're not ingrained and successful in this like bizarre virtual space, then you failed or you're not somehow cool. And, or you, you know, you have to like have some sort of thing to contribute to society that's like superficial, right? Um, and, and it's a shame to me because I, I just find that so toxic. Yeah, well, it can have a, a uniquely pernicious effect because we start to appease our base more and more. Right. And we have all these little micro bases, even if it's 10,000 followers on Instagram, you start posting photos that you think that they'll like and you start living your life in a way that you think you will be rewarded for. But that's not necessarily the best for yourself or your community overall in the long term. Exactly. Yeah, no, if you... If you just look, first of all, capitalism makes us feel like we need to look out for ourselves, that we're individuals. And if we haven't succeeded, then we're losers. And that's why you see a lot of people who are lashing out and don't know what to do. Because I just read a study yesterday that baby boomers have made 20% more than millennials at our same age. Um, and we're able to store away, I don't know, like 50% more of their savings. And so we're painted as these lazy millennials who just toil away on our parents' trust funds and have no fucking, it's like, no, the majority of us are working two to three jobs and actually making 20% less than our parents did. That's the economy that we live in. And that's the trend that is going to continue. Um, But it just kills me that the burden is on us where you can't, you know what I mean? It's like, there's no community base. I mean, we have a friend here from Spain who was stunned at how he were so closed off. It's like, why the fuck are you talking to me? Do you, what do you want from me? And he was like, wow, like this is crazy. Is this how America is? Like I thought LA would be really friendly. It's a lot of fake friendliness, but then the second that you're like too real, people are like, you're, you're fucking crazy. I can't give you anything. Um, and even his neighbor, he tried to go talk to him and his neighbor like opened the door with like the chain and he was like, what, what, what do you want? You know, and it's just so weird that this is the society that we live in. Cause as someone who's traveled around the world, it's so different. The community sense. Yeah, you do see it when you travel around the world. And you, like, my mom once told me um, that when she was a kid, you could drink out of streams. And everyone would drink out of streams. Whereas now, you don't drink out of streams anymore. And you don't think about the fact that just one generation ago, people could drink, drink out of streams, right? You... We are very good at adapting to our surroundings. And... Um, we can get into some hellacious spaces where um, we are miserable and we have no idea why. So you talked about abolishing this system. What Mm. aspects do you think uh, are important to abolish and what would you like to replace it with, if anything? So I think it's really difficult because I think we're in a global 
impediment with the, the way that capitalism has inevitably evolved, um, where it is so predatory and it's like a succubus where it's going to keep growing. That's like the nature of it. And if you have board you know, boards of directors that one of the boards of directors is going to say, you know, I don't want to destroy this tribe in Argentina to build this factory. And he's just going to get fucking voted out because the profits need to keep going up year after year. But on a micro sense, I can't do much about in a global sense. I mean, I can think globally, but you have to act locally. I think that, um, I, I think voting is literally the least thing that you can do in terms of abolishing the system. Um, we absolutely need to abolish the electoral college. We need to abolish the two-party system. I think it's a complete fucking disgrace with a country this vast with 350 million people living in it. California is like, this is like Iraq. I mean, we have, I don't know, 35 million people living in California alone. The fact 12 that million in LA alone. That is insane. Um, so it, it, of course, we're not going to get anything done with a country this huge and with the limitations this strong, you know, um, for example, the jungle primary actually, which is tomorrow in California, um, really expunges third party voices. It was already difficult enough to have a third party voice on the ticket. It costs millions of dollars. You have to petition, you have to get like tens of thousands of signatures. And it's just a huge arduous process to even get on the same loving level playing field from, from these two party. I would love it to be a loving playing field, loving loving (laughs) empathic playing field. Um, but the problem is now that they, you know, money controls everything. And so one rich asshole in 2010 was able to change the entire primary system to now just make it. So the top two voted candidates, no matter what party get to the top. So that can mean just two Republicans just get to the top and then you have no no one to vote for come the actual election. So it, and then no one from third party can actually be on the ballot in the actual election day. So it's only the primary where you even have a shot as a third party candidate. So that's just one aspect of how fucked up the system is. Um, the gerrymandering, the, the closed primary system. I mean, there's so many things wrong that have just been, like you said, we're like the frogs in the pot of boiling water. It's like we, all of a sudden we look back and we're like, how the fuck did you guys let this happen? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, how are we living in this system? And we still call ourselves the freest, best democracy in the world like this is a joke um there are so many things kyle it's tough um but but absolutely abolishing every single way that we vote and the democratic systems and we need a a ranked choice voting we also need a parliamentary system where we can vote um we have multiple parties that have access to congress um instead of these corporate shill parties are there any are there any bright spots that you're looking to any what? Bright spots, examples that you are looking to that you think would make uh, elections more fair and allow people to have uh, better voices? No. No? Not in America. No, um, it's outs- getting worse. outside of America. I mean, yes. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm talking oh, about totally. like what are things that people can do? I agree, yeah, with, I agree yeah. with you around the electoral right. college. Um, one person who I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of is Lawrence Lessig, who yes. does a lot of work around um, campaign finance reform. Uh, and I think that there are certain issues in our system that are leveraged forms of impact. Um, and I think that you are uniquely good at sifting through the distractions and pinpointing those. Mm -hmm. So I, I want you to pinpoint those for people and, um, talk about anything that they can do. Yes. So, um, it's tough because if I had a, you know, 
the saving grace, I would be doing it. And it's really, really tough to be all political analyst, but then also have the solutions. Um, and so that is really tough, and I'm still trying to figure that out. But I encourage everyone, obviously, to get involved with a group. So find your one passion, you know, whether it be environmental, po politics, um, social. Get involved, because that is absolutely the best thing that you can do to get out of this isolation where you feel like we were talking about before where you feel like you are just alone you're a voice in, in the sea you have no ability to change anything at all the second that you join up with other like minds all of a sudden you feel like a force um, and that is also the most rewarding thing that you can do spiritually um, because it's just so amazing and and they can guide you you know and usually you can just fall into different paths and and that's really inspiring and empowering I look at places like Iceland, who had a bloodless revolution, Korea, who had a bloodless revolution. I mean, these are people that came out in the streets of tens of millions and actually just occupied spaces. Um, Iceland just occupied the parliament building until they all stepped down. I mean, they did not leave. I think that, again, with America, it's such a vastly huge country that it's really tough, and, and people are so isolated. People are like, oh, you're living in that liberal bubble in the city. It's like, who's more living in a bubble? Me, where I'm surrounded by def different ethnicities and cultures and languages, or you, who are living in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, who literally don't talk to anyone of a different ethnicity or minority group? Like, probably you. But how do we reach those people who are the vast majority of this country while we're in these cities? Um, it's really tough, Kyle. I'm, I think it starts with communication and language because I think that everyone wants the same basic things. Um, we're just tricked. The system knows how to trick people. I mean, this is, <laughs> it's a tale as old as time. Like, people, when you sit down with them in a room, they all want the same basic things and no one really wants to hurt or maim or like torture people or, or wars to continue, but it's just, the system is a machine at this point and people are just conditioned into accepting it. So you were talking earlier about how overwhelming it is that there are just so many people in this country and it's very difficult to get involved with an issue and make it seem like your voice matters. I'm a big fan of acting locally. Um, and taking power away from, um, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm going to fumble my way into this aspect of the conversation, but I think that it's something that is really interesting. Um, Santa Cruz, for example, uh, a number of years ago made nuclear power illegal, right? It was a local, um, ordinance that happened and, it superseded uh, national ordinances to, and and as a result, we have the Monterey Bay, which is this thriving ecosystem. Um, North Dakota, for example, had a state-run uh, bank and were less affected by the 2008 crash than most other states. Um, and I think that in terms of looking for bright spots, in terms of looking for decentralization and diversity, that is a way that um, people can innovate. Um, but that then, I, I think it can become polarizing because a lot of people on the right say that that's what they want, like taking power away from mm -hmm. government. But it, it seems to me that a lot of the power that's being taken away is from parts that shouldn't be taken right. away, like environmental protection. Right. Um, and it, it, these kinds of conversations are used to continue to further corporate interests. 
for sure. And I'm glad you brought up the referendums and those successes, Kyle, because that is huge. And and I feel like a negative Nancy by not <laughs> mentioning the fact that there I, are... I'm going to take you surfing more. Are... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn you into to an optimist. That's you're gonna, so... You're going to see, dol- see a dolphin jump out of the water. I was like, oh, we're fine. <laughs> I've seen your... I can die now. I've seen your art projects. It's going to turn from like American flags and Nazi symbols, like dolphins and rainbows. It's like a Lisa Frank sticker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that is, that's such a good point. I mean, even in San Luis Obispo, which is right here, I met the mayor. She's an incredible, like progressive Bernie crat. And she was just like, she's like, I have no idea how the hell I got elected. She's like, we just divested from fossil fuels. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Like, how did you do this? And so that is a huge example. Someone like Shama Sawan, Seattle from the city council, who's been making huge waves as an elected socialist. But absolutely, Kyle, there are so many initiatives on college campuses with the BDS divesting from Israeli war crimes and products to divestment from fossil fuels and all these initiatives are working we just don't hear about them obviously in the corporate press that is subsidized by oil oil corporations and banks and defense contractors who's actually divesting code pink has a great project right now where they're trying to divest from the war machine as well so if you are in college link up with these communities they're out there and they are trying to make these initiatives happen and they have monumental waves through the establishment they really do, and they have a huge impact, and it really all starts from local actions like that. Um, but what what did you just say at the end of? Well, I was talking about taking, um, giving states more oh, power. Right. So it's and, right. and it's this idea of more self organizing systems. So th- this is um, now we're going to jump into the waters of voluntarism and mm-hmm. libertarianism, mm-hmm. and um, I, you know I'm inspired by what I see happening in Silicon Valley regarding innovation and this is in the private sector people coming up with good ideas and innovating really quickly um and i think that monopolies are really dangerous um and right now we have a monopoly on force which is the u.s government um and a monopoly on police systems and i I think that so in certain sectors of society we see the we see the private sector as way better, right? Like FedEx Mm -hmm. rocks uh, U.S. Postal. Um, But we haven't taken that conversation into um, private security, for example, that might be then competing for your business. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I know I'm. Oh no, my God! Absolutely. I'm, I'm flailing First of all, I love here, the post office, and I'm really sad they're trying to take it away because it right. actually is way cheaper than FedEx. FedEx is fucking exorbitantly expensive, and so is um, what the fuck is the other one? I forgot. But they're bad, and FedEx is the, bad. My, the brown one. And then the, <laughs> <laughs> There's FedEx, the brown one. My friend, my my good friend, Mike's brother, John, works at FedEx, and he said that it is really extreme. I mean, there's a guy who basically, I mean, basically, they, they give people so little breaks, and this is the same at Amazon that you hear, that, you know, of course it's fucking efficient as shit. Like, these are, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations that have, like, completely figured out how to fucking maximize the hell out of productivity. But at what cost? Where, you know, what happens to the workers? Where my friend John, who says that he literally 
there's like a robot timing you, you know, and it's super fucking dangerous. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like showing you with my hand. There's a robot timing you and it's so dangerous also, like you're dealing with all these heavy things and there's, there's really no worker safety. And if you don't keep things on a certain pace, you get docked. And there's, you know, there's people who even leave like piss bottles in the car because they don't even have time to actually go to the bathroom because they have to stay on this crazy timeline back to your point about libertarianism though but well, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, we're talking about yeah, oh, okay. productivity and like oh, yes, do, do yes. you think that it is a fair system that like if the government controls mail like we're, these are the two things that we're talking about like how well, how can we make the best possible system for the most okay people? so the problem with that is it's not here's the thing is that the corporations have actually fucked over the post office and made it almost impossible. Like they've defunded it to the point where it's because on purpose. So they want to actually completely abolish it so then they can take it over. The, the basic crux of the government versus corporate power stuff is, is um, best explained, I find, by my friend Peter Joseph, who made the Zeitgeist trilogy. Um, because he, he says it like this, and I used to be more libertarian-minded. I... I didn't really have a grasp on economics very well and I was just like a little bit more confused because I was just so focused on anti-war activism and you know ending the empire and let's get rid of the, all these bases and so I was like attracted to Ron Paul back you know 10 years ago because I thought this is the only guy out there who's really saying these things and then when I realized what his economic philosophy was I thought wow this is actually really detrimental and I'll tell you why and Peter really laid it out I think the best that I ever could which he said to your point also about, um, I forget what you said about like, like basically having a constitution, like let's say a company doesn't have a fucking constitution. They could do whatever the hell they want. These are private tyrannies. There is no democracy whatsoever in a corporation. You work for an amazing corporation. <laughs> Patagonia is like, I think the best example of a corporation that could do good. Um, that's very rare. Um, and so I think when you're looking at the way the government's structured and people like to blame the government for everything, that is actually a trope perpetrated by right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers to blame the government for all of our ails. We don't want to look at who's behind the government, the market forces that have pushed and basically created this government that we have today, which is literally just corporate shills who work for their masters. I look at the government, and this is what Peter has taught me through his work, is Market forces control politicians. It's not the other way around where governments are comprised of, of people who then just want to sell out and become like corporate shills. No, it's people who get in potentially altruistically and then they get in and this force exerts all control to shape and monopolize um, the avenues of, of change. That's the problem that I have with more relinquishing more power to corporations. At least with a government structure, we have the ability to actually have a say. But if you're just relinquishing control to corporations and saying, yeah, let's, de you know, let's deregulate everything. Look, deregulation is what got us here. Look at what Clinton did. Um, the Clinton era basically deregulated everything. They deregulated media. That's why we have five corporations that control everything that we see here and read, 90%. That's why we have the energy system that we have today. That's why basically everything is the way that it is, is because of massive deregulation. So I find that a really interesting argument where people are actually, no, we need more deregulation why so the market could quote unquote correct itself 
corporations don't quote unquote correct themselves until fucking massive amount of people die until people actually like Ralph Nader force them to put seatbelts in cars after God knows how many people die because there were no airbags until consumer advocates force the hand of corporations because again it comes down to profit structures so it's just a really I think naive way and I was very naive before I just saw it in the bald truth I would much rather have a say as fucked up as our government is today, like at least there's something that we can do to hold them accountable at least. But when you're fucking talking about corporations, these corporations don't give a shit. They're private tyrannies with no constitution, no moral compass. And that's the scariest thing to me, Kyle, about we, we have talks of privatizing our military and just having a private mercenary army run by Blackwater. We already have that uh, to a large extent in Iraq and stuff, but literally replacing all troops in Afghanistan and just like putting... Blackwater mercenaries to replace all U.S. ground forces. I mean, then you would have literally no, like, it would just be like, I have no idea what this external company is doing, and they have no allegiance to any sort of government. And that's really a terrifying world, and that's where we're going. Where do you see the most impact in terms of redistribution of taxes? So Stephen Hawking's before he died, he was, it's really tragic that he passed because I feel like we're left with all these kind of celebrity scientists who don't have that same just sheer brilliance and like innate morality that Stephen Hawking or someone like Carl Sagan did. It's really a shame because he, he really had it all. And, and some of these thoughts sound so radical today because our, you know, our, our society has shifted so far over the right that someone like Bernie Sanders seems like Che Guevara to people. They're like, holy fuck, how is this guy like, you know, but, but you look at London, Jeremy Corbyn is actually way more radical than Bernie Sanders and he's head of the Labour Party. Every other country, I feel like, is so much more advanced in, in their ideologies and political evolution than we are. We've been set back so much from the Reagan era and the Clinton era. But anyway, to your point, I, I totally went on a rant. <laughs> You're great. You're great. What did you, what did you <laughs> say? So I, too much talking, weed. We were talking about surfing and dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about that shark behind you today. <laughs> no, I was, I was asking about... Um, the redistribution of taxes. Yes. So before he died, he, he did a Reddit AMA and he said, not only was he a fervent um, supporter of boycotting Israel, he did not, he refused to go to scientific conferences in Israel. He said, no, this is terrible. And he was on the cusp of that 10 years ago, which is just extremely insightful. But he all, one of the last things that he said, he said, look, we're, we're going down obviously a very dark path. And unless we have a massive redistribution of wealth, we are in for a very, very treacherous time. Um, and I couldn't agree with him more. And I, I think that the massive redistribution of wealth has to go to the fundamental basic needs of, of society. Healthcare, I think, is the absolute number one thing. When people are saying we can't afford it, that is the absolute wrong way to look at it. It's that we have to do it because it's an innate human right. And when we're the richest country in the history of humanity, that's built on the backs of genocide and then the enslavement of African Americans and the genocide of Native Americans, that's where our wealth came from. It didn't just start out of the fucking money trees that we discovered in you know Western expansion. We have to take our wealth and provide it for humanity. I mean, you look at societies and really the societies speak for themselves of how they treat the most poor, marginalized, and oppressed people in that society. And what do we do with our mentally ill homeless populations in this society? 
fucking nothing. We jail the mentally ill. We have no medical apparatus to help people who are mentally ill. And homeless people are living in Skid Row in tent cities. Um, Reagan sent them all to Santa Cruz. They gave them a one. Yeah, <laughs> or, they actually gave them out. You know? they, they they gave them a one way ticket bus yeah, uh, bus, bus to out. yeah. And everyone's like, Santa oh Cruz. my god, what did Giuliani do to solve or like <laughs> all these people? And Giuliani did the same thing in New York. And he was like, I solved the homeless crisis. I shipped them all to New Jersey. Right. So if power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, how can we? Uh, guarantee that a risk redistribution of taxes and wealth wouldn't be corroded by the corruption within government. Exactly. And that's where you see the problem with a lot of the, the more authoritarian um, communist, socialist-esque systems in the right. past where it's been way too centralized and way too closed off to the outside world. Again, going back to the colonized colonizers, it's really hard to look at the world today and look at somewhere like North Korea and think, what would North Korea be like if it wasn't under com- constant threat of being overthrown by the world's most powerful entity? What if, what would Cuba be like if it just was allowed to flourish without this embargo? What would these countries be like? What would Venezuela be, be like without these crippling sanctions and, and allowed to just develop as this system? So like in terms of the impediments with media freedom and free speech and press and stuff, that I feel like it's it's really tough to understand the evolutions of these countries with in that lens, you know, without un- to see like what would happen if the empire wasn't didn't have a boot on all these countries for the past hundred years. But um, but that's why I think it needs to be more cooperative based. That's why it's really tough to imagine some sort of more socialist system in the U.S. Right. With, this, with the construct that you're talking about, where, it, where it's really easy to centralize that power and corrupt it. Yeah, and they is, have all the guns, too. <laughs> we have all the it's tanks a, and the guns. Right, like, so if is, you don't pay up, we're knocking on your kills, door and we're going to take you to prison. Thing. I'm like, this is you guys are going to fucking think that you're going to overthrow the U.S. government? Like, we have nukes and tanks and sound weapons that will actually immobilize you and make you shit your pants before you leave the house with your AK. Um, I, but, know, I know all about that. We can talk about some... <laughs> <laughs> You, you know a bit about my background. I know about those sound weapons. It's true, though. Fuck yeah, it is. We got some crazy-ass weapons, man, that the, the completely immobilize you. Like, we don't even know the half of it. Yep. So I think it's the, the decentralization to a point, and that's really what, um, like, ultimately what Marx, is, Marx talked about is, like, decentralizing these entities to a point where you can cooperatively control them. That's why co-ops are really interesting because you all have a democratic say in how you can govern and manage the resources. Um, so I, I really think it would be very difficult to have in the U.S. unless we were somehow able to, um, like, you know what I mean, like consolidate or, or compartmentalize different institutions and structures that were able to be cooperatively managed. Um, but it's really tough. I mean, it's tough to imagine. I think that California should be its own <laughs> country. I mean, then, then we can at least try to figure it out. But yeah, it's tough when you have... You know, it's just evangelical base in right. this country that's just setting us back a lot. Yeah, and there should be certain inalienable rights that, like, let's say that we do go to a, a more state-by-state rights mm-hmm. system. Like, free speech is still important everywhere, right. and we can't make it so that Georgia uh, doesn't allow people to say whatever they want, and California does. Like, there, are, I think that there are certain rights that all other movements are predicated upon, but... Um, yeah, it is. It is interesting. I mean, with the amount of people there are in the world right now, how do we shift the needle on a local level? It's tough. I think it's what what you said. Where we're at today, it seems so. 
insurmountable. Is that even the right word? Um, but it's really, it seems completely unattainable and the, that's why we have to just do what we can like yeah. locally. You absolutely, yes, you can carry the world on your shoulders to a certain extent by just, you know, being an internationalist and, and having empathy. And your back's going to hurt. But you cannot, you can't let it just debilitate you. You can't. You have to be able to channel your energy and passion into something that you can see the successes in front of you and to keep you going. And that's whether it be networking, building the communities, or, or getting involved with those local initiatives. And it, and it works. It, it, it does work on a local level. It absolutely does. So when I was 18, uh, I, one of my mentors at the time was this woman named Catherine Austin Fitz, who is oh, the, yeah, I know her. Do you know her? Yeah. Undersecretary of Housing and Urban Development for the first Bush administration. And uh, she was the one who taught me a lot about the banking system, mm-hmm. which led me to create that first video on the influence that you can have socially and environmentally by moving your money from centralized banks into local banks and credit unions. She'll tell you all about sound weapons. <laughs> she knows a lot about sound There are some too. dinners together where you're like, oh shit, you're using a lot of big words in unison. <laughs> I'm not having right take it. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't use that shit on it's me. It's a wild upbringing. Wow. And then I would yeah, run back down to my friend's house and <laughs> shotgun PBRs. <laughs> Keg stand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It's tough, though. It's it's tough. You know, what do you do? I mean, you do what you can. The role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Tony Bambara. Ooh. You know I that always, one? No, I don't. I always go to Nina Simone's quote where an artist's duty is to reflect the times. And if you're not getting some sort of reaction out of your art, and of course, art, you know, do whatever the fuck you want. I'm going like, like going back to my whole, you need to do this as an artist. Um, no, you do art to make you happy. But I think if you want to challenge people with your art, you really do need to, you know, if it's good art, it needs to have a visceral reaction, whether it be good or bad or, you know, it, it, it should, it should have that, um, with people. Yeah. And so that's what I try to do. I try to make people even you know it's it's really tough to look at or it somehow is inspiring to you one Um, of my favorite words is perfunctory Ooh, you know what perfunctory means um perfunctory is it's done with minimal effort or Mm. care and a lot of artists use the word perfunctory to describe like what we have now where there's Mm. a lot of art out there that people will give you the thumbs up on and give you a pat on the back and say, Oh, good job on that painting. That's real cool. But it doesn't say anything. Yeah. It doesn't say anything. And again, going to this mass commercial commercialization of what art is, Mm -hmm. um, it's not only the unattainable elitist idea to a lot of people, but it's also just like your mass consumerism. Um, where art has just been devalued and demystified to the point where it's just like gross. Um, but I think, lo- yeah, I just, I think that, you know, going back to comedy, going back to art, mm-hmm. I really do believe that people learn through metaphor and people can empathize with each other through metaphor. And that's a really effective way to get them to shift their worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I do think that artists have a really important role to play moving forward. Um, and I, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's really important. It always inspires me when I see people going for it. And it's, it's a good reminder as you've spoken about a ton in this conversation of, of around how polarized these figures that we now revere as heroes were at the time. Yeah. 
um, art. It's amazing. I mean, I lived in Manhattan for a while and I was so astounded by the amount of horrible art that is in these really highbrow galleries. It was either like, you're going to go in there and see something epic or shit, like absolute garbage. And you're, and you're just looking at it thinking, I'm insulted that this is here, but also it really gave me some insight on how that, you know, the modern art world functions where you literally, like we were talking about Hollywood, it's like you're born into it a lot of the times. Like if you're just wealthy and then you just, you know, you just get all the hookups because you have the connections. And I think that's a lot of what Manhattan is. But it just, again, going back to the elitist nature and it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. I love being hated. It lets me know that I made it. Eminem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, one thing that I wrote down during your Noam Chomsky interview, which I'm super jealous of, um, <laughs> He said, if people win enough freedom, you can't control them by force. Therefore, you have to control their beliefs and attitudes. And I think that art plays a big role in helping to break people out of their boxes and their confines and allows them to see the world through a new prism. Oh, my God, totally. I mean, it would, you know, like if I just had my, my political diatribes written up on a wall, people would be like, the fuck is this? Yeah. You know, if I had that concept in an image and it just can speak to you like nothing else can. It's a yeah. language that's not only universal, but can really generate profound ideas and inspirations and thoughts and creativity that simply language cannot. Yeah. Um, it's a really incredible thing. And that's why I just encourage everyone to get involved. Going back to the whole artists have a responsibility. I'm really disappointed with not only musicians, but artists, again, in the era that we're living in. I mean, people like to rag on Eminem, but I'm like, dude, he's really one of the only musicians that's out there like speaking a lot of crazy truth, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm just like looking around at where the hell is everyone else here? Um, it's time for people to really take chances here and not worry about alienating, like we said, the tribal mentalities and we just got to go for it someone's gonna me leave me a mean comment on yeah, instagram exactly. <laughs> ruin my day <laughs> oh my god yeah i i think that uh going back to surfing immersing ourselves deeply in nature can uh provide us with the most honest reflections of ourselves and that's really what we're trying to come back to again and again and again your phone doesn't give you an honest re reflection of yourself most of your friends don't give you an honest reflection of yourself but if you are out in the middle of the ocean alone that conversation with yourself is who you really are nature is essential that's who we are we're it, it's so bizarre to me when i meet people and they're like oh i i hate camping I just don't like it. I don't it. like pooping like, in the woods. I'm like, well, you, what do you mean? Like, get the fuck out of Have this house. Have you ever shit in the woods? <laughs> yeah, Some like, of the best poops of my living. life. Squatting you're down. Oh, yeah. Squatty potties. I mean, it's just, it's just, that's when I feel most human, obviously, as well. We all should, um, because you just, that's where we belong. Yeah. Where do you, where do you, um, what do you want to do more of in the next couple of years? Art and nature. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that being here and you know, going like, like going back to the Patagonia fighting this corporate takeover of the privatization of these natural parks, the grand staircase, I, I had a chance to travel just through a couple States last year on a road trip. Holy shit. I mean, we really do have some of the most spectacular 
landscape and yeah. parks and the entire world and, and, and the diversity and variety of, of landmarks and monuments is just breathtaking and awe-inspiring. And the Grand Staircase, I encourage everyone, Grand Staircase, Escalante. And Bears Ears. These, and Bears these are Ears, the two yeah. areas that are being downsized yes. and the monument uh, status is being yeah. taken away through Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke and Trump and Patagonia suing them. And there's dinosaur fossils there. There's Native American reservation, not reservations, but monuments. Um, and what's so amazing about it is just the vastness, I guess. And when you're, you know, you're at Bryce Canyon and you can actually see the levels of the earth. Like you could actually just, just see the expanse of the actual steps of time. Cause that's why they call it the grand staircase is like, you could see the eons in front of you of how this emerged. Um, it's just, I'm just like getting chills cause it's just so amazing to me. So I want to do more of that. I want to see Death Valley. I want to go, you know what I mean? I just want to do everything that I can, go camping and, and go on as many hikes as I can and see as much as I can. And that's that's really my goal while obviously doing doing the work that I do and, and doing more art because I feel like I'm, I'm not myself unless I have um, a chance to, to have some sort of um, outlet like that. Yeah. I got this camping setup where it's all in one bucket and I can be out the door in 15 minutes wow. when I decide to go camping. I make it as easy as possible on myself. Sleeping bag, yeah. pad, jet boil, couple pots and pans, throw it in my car and I'm out. You just have a, just a, you need like a little solo tent and all that and just mm -hmm. go. Yeah, it's great little, um, I forget what kind of tent it is, but that's, I'll tell you one area where they really have it figured out, outdoor gear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they solve oh, those yeah. problems. Yeah, one of my buddies is the head um, product tester at Patagonia mm -hmm. and he was telling me, we were on a trip together and, and right after that he was going out to the snow for 10 days to uh, test a bunch of their 2019 stuff. And I was like, oh, tough life, huh? And he's like, think about this, Kyle. If you go out into the snow on a camping trip and your Patagonia gear doesn't work, you aren't just going to dislike the company. You're going to have a hate and, and vitriol towards the company <laughs> that is unparalleled because you're going to be fucking freezing yeah. your ass off. So we got to make sure that this stuff works. And I think that there, there, that is one... Um, Obviously, they sponsor me, so maybe I am not looking at it through a, a totally sober lens, but I, I do find inspiration in companies that value their customer enough to say, if this product doesn't work, send it back to us. We're going to have huge. a lifetime guarantee on this product. And I'm don't get me started on the materials economy, but I do think that... Um, it's nice to see the pendulum start to swing back with companies um, that make really good gear rising to the top. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. We were talking before about, um, you know, do we see the future as, as hopeful in terms of corporations taking things in their own hands? Unfortunately, Patagonia is um, a, a very big outlier, yeah. I think, in that respect. But you see, you know, if, if one person can do it, another can. Mm. And I was talking to um, s some people at another company around uh, about the fact that Patagonia is suing uh, Secretary of Interior. I was saying, think, look at all of the positive press that they're getting, this free positive press. Um, like, what if another right. company stepped up and said, you know what, we're going to take a stand to uh, legalize the medical use of psychedelics in this state? Think about all of the press that they would get. And I, I you know, again, if you, you want to highlight these bright spots. 
And, yes. And the more that we can, uh, the quicker stuff changes and it's important to go out and camp in between. Absolutely. And I think that, um, it's a, a tragedy that we even have styrofoam and plastic still in 2018 in this, in this world. And, um, you know, it's just really unfortunate, the knowledge and consciousness that we have and the fact that we're still using products like that just doesn't make any sense to me, but that's, again, we just have to, uh, force the hand or do it ourselves, but you're awesome, man. And I, I'm really just inspired to know you and inspired to now surf. <laughs> Anytime, Abby Martin, um, I am a fan of your bravery and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much, Kyle. You rock. Wow. That hour went by quick, man. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Flashing Lights by Sourgrass. These guys listened to the show and they sent me some tunes. If you are a musician and you want your music played at the end of this podcast, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. And if you have a voice memo that you want played at the beginning of the podcast, you can record it on your phone using the voice memos app. Just let me know who you are, where you're listening in from, something you're excited about these days, and you can email it to info at kyle.surf. If you want to listen to more episodes like this one, I recommend checking out number 98 with Nat Geo correspondent Ryan Duffy, number 67 with photojournalist Don Mira, or number 59 with Lonely Planet writer Adam Skolnick. All right, guys, until next time, don't forget this is an ad free podcast. So if you can spare a few bucks, click the link below Abby's bio and support the show on Patreon. If not, please don't worry about it. Give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. That's the only way that other people find out about this podcast. Um, And reach out. I love hearing from all of you. Hope you enjoy this song called Flashing Lights by Sourgrass. And until next time, get out in the water, give someone a high five, and have a beautiful day.
Let's go out.